turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 17 today. As Americans, we believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mainly we believe in the pursuit of happiness. You constantly hear messages every day telling you to be happy. And when you're not happy, you're told that you need to search within yourself to discover who you are so that you can actually, in an authentic way, pursue your own dreams. Fulfillment is found in expressing the true you. Only life rarely works out the way we want. Disappointments and frustrations abound, do they not? And somewhere along the way, we usually ask, how does God fit into the mess of my life? We know that God has created the world. He's created us. We know that we are made in the image of God. We know that we are called to take dominion over this world in which we live. But how exactly does God relate to the pursuit of happiness? Contrary to the messages of the world, true happiness begins with being rightly related to God. Only then can we have some assurance of a meaningful interaction with the world. In Genesis 2, we see the interlocking of God, man, and the world. And in this passage, we see a general pattern for man's happiness. And even though everything will be made more complex after the fall, the general pattern remains. Last week, when Genesis 2-3, God was resting. Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3 is a complete account of God's work of the creation of the entire heavens and earth. But with Genesis 2-4, we are giving, given a very different portrayal of God. Now, this description is not contrary to Genesis 1. It is complementary. They both weave together to give us a more complete picture of our God and our world. Now, throughout Genesis 1, the word chosen for God is Elohim. And this word fits nicely with Moses' picture of describing God as the transcendent and omnipotent God over creation. Now by omnipotent, we mean all-powerful, no rivals. And by transcendent, we mean a God who is above and outside the creation. Now, God's transcendence and his omnipotence are absolutely vital to his essence. These 
attributes of God are also what we need. God is not dependent on the world. He is not limited to the circumstances of life as you are. He is above and beyond your problems that you face every day. So transcendence and omnipotence are wonderful attributes that you need to dwell upon and think about on a regular basis. But it's not all that we can say about God. God is also imminent and personal. By imminent, we mean that he is present. He is nearby. And by personal, we mean that he is relational. He interacts and communicates with us. And really, many of the mysteries of life are bound up in the very nature of God being both transcendent and imminent, both omnipotent and personal. Those two weaving that together. And if you want to do justice to Scripture, you must dig around in your mind, you must find in there a very strong cable, you must secure one end to God's transcendence, and then you must secure the other end to God's imminence. You must never allow your pursuit of the one to dislodge you from the other. They both must be held together. Now Moses does this for us in Genesis 2. He does it by adding to the name God, Lord. Do you see that in the text? In Genesis 1, all we saw was God. But in Genesis 2 we see Lord God. And this introduction is there to help you as I read the text right now, to help you to see that as I read. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4, going through verse 17. Please follow along with me in your own Bibles. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. 
It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. May God bless the reading of his word. In verse 4, we come to a very noticeable literary marker. It's, that literary marker is, these are the generations of. The Hebrew for that is toledot, T-O-L-E-D-O-T. And if you were to take a flyover of the whole book of Genesis, you would find that the writer, Moses, uses this word to divide his book into ten different sections. They are distinct units. And what they do is they're headings. So uh, in this particular one, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And so what follows the statement of these are the generations of is either a, uh, like a um, descendants, a list of descendants, or a narrative account explaining what goes on. And in this particular one, This is a narration of what happened to the earth. That's really what he's saying. So like, you know, God made it, everything was good, he's resting. Oh yeah, but what happened now? We look around and there's death and disease and all this kind of stuff. Well, this is going to be an explanation of what happened to the heavens and the earth. This section actually continues all the way through chapter 4. It doesn't finish until the end of chapter 4, and then a new section begins in chapter 5. We're not going to get that far today. We're not even going to get into man's fall into sin. Our passage basically sets up the fall. It sets in place the relationships between man and the world and God such that now the fall will become understandable. That's what he's doing. But I think, in addition to giving us the context of the fall, it also helps us to see what are the ingredients that are necessary for a meaningful life in this world and a harmonious relationship with God. So we begin with the name Lord that has been added to the God passage. To, to the gods, the word God that was in the previous passage. What's interesting about this, and it's almost shocking, Dan prayed Lord God today. I don't know if you knew that, but you did. And I thought, oh, that fits right in with the passage, okay? Um, but it is really odd. The word Lord, it's actually God's personal name, it could be Jehovah or Yahweh or I am that I am. There's lots of different, but that in all caps, the word Lord is used thousands of times in Scripture. Like 6,000 times. It's amazing how many times it's used. And if you look at God, which is the word Elohim, a more generic kind of 
uh, omnipotent being that's created the world, if you look at God, it's also used thousands of times. I think it was like 2,500 times or something like that. It's a lot. But Lord God is put together 35 times in the Bible. And 20 of them are in this, this chapter 2 and 3. There's a purpose for this. God, I mean Moses, wants to hook a chain from the, the creator omnipotent God of chapter 1 with the personal Lord God of the Israelites. And he wants them to be together. They are one and the same. And there's another hint that we should expect a more personal and imminent God in chapter 2 because we see uh, a reversal of the word order of heavens and earth. So in chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. It's from God's perspective. He's omnipotent. The heavens first, the heavens and the earth. But in chapter 2, if you look at verse 4, it begins, these are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created in that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens switches it. And I think that there is a sense that is what God is doing on the earth as he interacts with his people. That's the focus of what we're getting at. God is transcendent. He is imminent. He is both all-powerful and untouchable, and he is personal with you. Both of those are true. Now, how is he personal with me? What is the nature of the relationship that we have with God? Now we're ready to begin looking more closely at verses 5 and 6. There it begins... When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now this is, this is rather shocking. You read through Genesis 1, and God acts. He speaks, it happens, things go on, right? Here in Genesis 2, we're not so much told what God does do, we're told what he is not doing. God had not caused it to rain. That's pretty striking. And there are all kinds of questions when you try to merge the two, uh, Genesis 1 with Genesis 2. You say, isn't it odd that there, weren't, there was a trouble having plants because God created the plants on day 3, they seem to be doing fine then. What about the statement that there's no man to work the ground? Wasn't God, didn't God already create Adam and Eve on day six? And, you know, what, at what point is this? But I, I don't think that's what God is getting at here. Not even going to try to answer all those questions today. If you want to talk with me afterwards, we could talk about those. But I believe that when God created plants, just like we see today, some of them will do just fine without any cultivation by man. They just happen. You let them go for 100, 200, 300 years, and you'll see them out there. The wild plants and trees of the field. But there are other plants and trees that only grow if they're cultivated. A gardener knows this. 
Right? He doesn't just sit there and say, oh, I hope the tomatoes are going to grow up this year. Right? And this was not random. This was designed by the wise hand of God. You see, God creates the plant world with the intention of giving man work. Do you see that? God intends to hold back what he does so that only together with man will these domestic crops grow. They are going to plant a garden together. It's not the work of God alone, and it's not the work of man alone. We might call this a synergistic relationship. I got in trouble in Sunday school because I, because I used the word pedagogical, and I'm like, what does that mean? Okay, synergistic. All that means is that God and man are working together. The plants will not grow without man working the ground. But neither will they grow unless God waters the earth. Now, when God originally created the world, it was a monergistic work, right? He just did it and it happened. But not here in Genesis 2. And I think this is the main point of the section, this whole section of Scripture. God is defining the rules of life. And he's also defining the rules of our relationship with him as we live in this world. So in verses 5 and 6, what do we see? We see a need. There is a task to be done. And there is human work that is necessary to get the task done. It's a good thing. It's very kind of God to actually let man have a part in his own productivity. You know, God didn't have to do it that way. He could have designed it so all you have to do is sit back in your lounge chair and here comes the food to you on a regular basis. That could have been the setup. Many people think that that would be a good thing in life. That's not the way God designed it. Instead, God gives us something to do. And that work is essential to our lives. If man doesn't work the ground, there's no harvest. If there's no harvest, there's nothing to eat. Now, of course, in our modern world, how we have, uh, you know, we all have our own diversification of jobs, there's only a small portion of the world that are farmers, at least in America. But I think this rule applies to all of life. God has something that he intends for each one of us to do to enable life to flourish in this world. Some are doctors, some are plumbers, some are mothers, some are teachers, some are garbage collectors. Obviously, that's a very short list. There's a lot more than that, right? The point is that many things in life will not get done unless someone takes the initiative to do them. In some way that the farmer can in, in the same way the farmer cannot expect a harvest unless he works the ground and plants the seed 
So the accomplishment of good in this world requires people to get active in doing something. And I know, I'm getting older now, but I remember when I was younger and I was just trying to understand myself and trying to understand my gifts and what is it that God wants from me. I know that that takes place. There's some sense of trying to understand how God has made you and and then trying to find your particular specific place in this world. I get all that. But Genesis 2 tells us that if you want to find meaning and significance in life, it is not primarily a search inward. It's not what God does here in Genesis 2. He doesn't sit down with, with Adam and says, you know, let's think about who you are. And let's, let's see you know, how you might fit into the process here. How the world fits into your desire for who you are. You look at the world and its needs and then you jump in. You don't just begin with yourself. You begin with God and his purposes. And you begin with the world and its needs. And you say, how can I fit in in a meaningful way to help this world along to be what God wants it to be? God expects us to find some task that needs doing. Anybody that works construction, you know, you have like, I've worked on construction crews, and if you have someone that's a worker, and they always need told what to do, maybe they'll do it, that's a good thing, but man, you cherish the one who will look at the site and see something that needs done and will get active doing it. I think that's built into us from the very beginning. Now, once you start looking at the needs of the world, once you quit just thinking about your inner self, but start thinking, what does the world need? It can be quite overwhelming. God does not call any one of us to fix the world. There is much wisdom in being able to be content with not taking the burden of trying to fix the whole world upon yourself. So I'm not, don't, don't take it that way. Don't go down that road of, oh, it's got to do everything. It's got to be done. No, sometimes you just need to be content with the little piece that you're doing. I believe that none of us will be happy unless we are taking the initiative to do some part in making the world a better place. Now, it is possible for unbelievers to engage the world in a meaningful way without any thought of God. But God doesn't want that either. God doesn't want people to just strive apart from God to do things in this world. That's not what he wants. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. So in Genesis 1, you just see God created this world. Bam. Man was made in the image of God. 
But here, what do we see? We see this combination of being fashioned, you know, like, like an like a, uh, artist, fashioned from the dust of the ground, and then receiving the breath of God. And the point of this receiving the breath of God is that we are brought face to face with God at our creation. See, God breathed life into the animal world. But in in this passage, he says he breathed into Adam's nostrils. Now you just picture that, someone breathing into another person's nostrils. How close are you to that person? You are close. Face to face. You want to talk about God's imminence and his personableness? You can't get much closer than this. Now we as as people are made out of the dust of the earth because we are connected to this physical world in which we live. That's a part. We need to be thinking about how to keep this world because we're a part of it. We're made from the same stuff. At the same time, we are also spiritual. We are face to face with God at our creation. The reformers like to use the word quorum deo. Quorum Deo, that's Latin, before the face of God. So in other words, if you go about your earthly existence, even if you're doing something good in the world, but you are not being brought face to face with God in a real relationship with him, you are missing out on God's purpose for you in life. Now, what I see here in Genesis 2 are basically two elements of this face-to-face relationship with God. One of them is fatherhood. The other, I think, is master. Those are the two elements that I think are uh, non-negotiables in your relationship with God. You cannot interact with God except in some sense as a loving father and in some sense as your master and lord. Okay, That's what's going on. So let's look at uh, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now understand... We began in verse 5 with the need of Adam to create a garden. There was no plants because there's no one to cultivate the ground. And what do we begin with? Not Adam's garden, but God's garden. So what do you do if you're a parent and you want to teach your kid how to do anything? You begin with, okay, let me demonstrate. Let me show you what we do here. Oh, that's how it works, right? I think God is acting that way. I think he's just... Coming to Adam, he's saying, look, you're going to be a gardener, and I know we're broadening that out to every possible way to cultivate life in this world, but just start with the garden analogy. You're going to become a gardener, so therefore, I'm going to show you what to do. God models it. Man doesn't have to sit there and go, man, plants, no plants growing? Uh, man, how are we going to get that to happen? He watches God do it. 
And it's also interesting that God does not immediately supply rain. You would expect if there's no rain on the ground, we, we cultivate a land, oh, there comes the rain. No, instead, how does God supply the water? Through a river. We'll see that a little bit later, why, the importance of that. But we also see that this river doesn't just stay in the garden. The river actually then splits off into four directions and goes off, right? And, and there's all kinds of things I can say about this. I don't think we should look for those particular geographical rivers today. This all occurred before the flood, and the flood surely changed the, the dynamic of the uh, rivers of that time. That's not the point. It, this is the point. God provides what man cannot supply himself. You see, God doesn't want man to entirely take care of life, meet all of his needs in a way that is independent of him. He wants to be the supplier. Now, I'm not against irrigation systems. There's nothing, that's not the point of this. It is what, similar to what Paul says when he writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We should be active in trying to do some good in this world, but we should never think that we can accomplish anything of true value apart from God's hand supplying the water for growth. How many people try to fix this world and do things with no thought of God? That's like breaking one of the fundamental principles of everything. He doesn't want us to just run our own world. He wants us to have a world in which we are interacting with him and we're interacting with the world. That's seen in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God gives man responsibility. And as human beings, you need responsibility. Without responsibility, you lack purpose. God is giving man purpose. Now, the initial garden was never to be all that there was to life. You know, God didn't say, okay, I got the garden here, and then as you populate and move on, I'll just keep planting new gardens for you. The idea is that man would then cultivate the world in which he lives. This is the model. In a sense, God places him in the garden to teach him, to instruct him. He's given the responsibility of keeping the garden. And this word, keeping, means to exercise great care over something or someone. It's the idea of guarding and protecting. We don't even know at this point if there's hostile things to, to attack. Of course, we're going to learn that Satan's going to be there, and that's going to be someone that's going to try to get into this garden. But man is given this responsibility of keeping it, giving great care over it. It's the same word that, you, that is used when you're called to guard your heart against sin. When a parent gives their child the first car, they should also give that child a lesson in responsibility. I'm not telling you you have to do it quite this way, but something to this effect. Okay, here's the car. It's your responsibility to check the tires. 
to make sure that the oil is changed, right? The care of the car is given to them. You're giving them responsibility. You don't just give them the car and say, run off with it. Oh, broke, okay, I'll fix it. You're trying to teach them responsibility. And God is doing the same thing. He wants us to take ownership. Sometimes it's real easy to see, like when he gives us a child, right? You know your responsibility. But sometimes it's hard to figure out responsibility. Like, what is it that you're giving me to do in this world, God? That's a real question. But, here's the, te- here's the key, we are called to submit to the responsibilities that he gives us. See, he doesn't just tell Adam, hey, you figure out your own purpose. He says, here's a great gift, here's a garden, you got to keep it. He gives him the task that he had to do. It's not, go search for it yourself, go search inward, here's the task, do it. And the word used for work here is not just labor, God could have used a word for labor here, it's the word for service. Like a servant or a slave, he gives him servant. He is the authority and he dictates what needs to be done. So I thought of a different illustration than the car one, right? How about chores? A chore is something that has to be done for the welfare of the whole household. It's not some personal project that you choose that's just yours. It's something that benefits the whole house. And this garden doesn't even belong to Adam. It's God's garden. It's his and therefore he has authority over it. And so he gives him the chore of keeping and working the garden. And here you see God's God's lordship. He's not just the God out there that created it and let the world go, some kind of deistic thing. He says, I am present and I give the orders here. I'm the master. You follow me. Happiness is not found in doing what you think will make you happy. Happiness is found in submitting your will to God's. I remember hating to pull weeds in the garden. But that was my chore. Now due to my own sinful heart, I resisted it, I fought against it, but I had to do it. And through that, God was my parents were teaching me a principle about God. You can fight against his will. You can go on doing your way of life as long as you want. But until you learn to say, okay, God, you give the directions. I serve you. You're going to be dissatisfied with life. This is a wonderful principle. I don't care what task you're doing in life, as long as it's lawful, not illegal, or something bad, I don't care what what task you're doing, you are serving God in that task. That's the point. If you want to be truly content, you need to be able to go, yes, I did today what my Lord gave me to do. That's life. God is a loving father and he's a master. He gives Adam chores. But this idea of God being master is not simply in him giving him chores. It is in the statement that comes in 16 and 17. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, and of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. So here's the point. God has the right to tell you no. And again, Dan, I appreciated that in your prayer or something you said in the call to worship. It was, it was just perfect. It was, yes, that's the whole point. God has the right to tell you no. Now, there's no literal tree in existence today. But there are plenty of things in this world that God forbids you to eat. He tells you no. He's not a killjoy. I mean, he creates trees that are all various types that are good to, the, to eat and pleasing to the sight. I mean, he, he gives these pleasures, but in the midst of that, he says, no. There's a no. And here's, a, here's the point. Happiness is not found in getting what you want all the time. That's not the pathway to happiness. Happiness can be found in submitting ourselves to God when he says no. That's a tough one. We don't like it to hear no. Going back to the illustration of the car, it'd be like your parents say, hey man, drive around, do what you want, but bring the car back here at 10 o'clock. Right? There's a prohibition. You cannot take the car past 10 There are limitations to our freedom in life. Our society, our world wants to throw off every shackle possible to somehow give you happiness. God says, no, 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 no. I'm the master. You must learn to submit to me. So here's my summary. And then I'm going to bring this into the cross. So it's not the end. Don't be like, oh, the summary, and then we're done. This has got to bring Christ into this. Doing meaningful work is God's provision to you. Everybody should think that way. What is it that I can do in this life? God gives us responsibility. Look for it sincere needs in the world and try to plug yourself into one of them. Understand that God's idea of greatness is not found in the task itself. Greatness is found in your willingness to do the task required in service to God. That's greatness. Secondly, while we are working, we are to rely upon God for any true accomplishment of anything good. Adam could till the soil, he could plant the seed, but he could not cause the ground to produce the blessing. Christians struggle because they put their focus on the blessing rather than the work. It's up to me 
to accomplish what I think needs to be accomplished. And God says, no, it's not up to you. I am the one that provides blessing. You just do your task. We must look to him to be the provider. If God doesn't work, what does it say? Unless the Lord builds the house, the man labors in vain. Thirdly, true happiness is found in surrendering what we want to what God wants. We work at God's direction, and there are some times that he tells us no. And we must learn to submit to him. I think this is like answers to life's questions. Genesis 2 describes a world before man's fall into sin. It lays the foundation for what sin will actually be. And sin always consists in not submitting yourself to God's command. That's what sin is. It's always a personal no back to God. When he tells you something to do this or to not do this, you stare him in the face and say, no, I will not. That's sin. I laugh a lot of times when uh, parents, you know, they have a new child and then, then it doesn't take long. Like, the, like maybe the first or second or third word that comes out of the kid's mouth is no. And you think, wait a minute, I have fed you, I have kept you, and, and you would die if I didn't take care of you, and you look at me and say no? That's kind of the way we do it with God. So I ask you today, search your hearts, are you in some way telling God no? If you are, you want to repent of that. You want to say, Lord, I'm sorry for doing things my way. Help me to submit my heart to you again. And this is a repeatable thing. I have not figured this all out. I sin. I do wrong things. And it's usually because I don't want to hear what God has to say when he says no. Now, even though that this sets us up for what is the true uh, sin and re- repentance. And, but this passage anticipates the gospel. And that's how I want to end today. Do you think it's accidental that God makes a tree of life? And when access to this tree is forbidden, it is upon another dead tree that salvation is one. It's not just that Jesus died. He died on a tree. It is through Jesus' death upon the cross that the way to the tree of life is reopened. He bears the curse for our sin as he hung on a tree. And is there not a river of life that flows into our hearts that produces what we cannot produce ourselves, which is a humble and obedient and submissive heart? 
Is it not the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends to dwell into our hearts? When we trust Him by faith alone, God knows how to provide the living water such that our soul is nourished and it bears fruit to God. You are His garden that He's working on. Rivers of life flowing through the cross to you. And is it not through this redemption that we are once again brought into a right relationship with God where He becomes our loving Father, training us to do works in this world that He's created in advance for us to walk in, but also our Master whom we submit to on a regular basis. So even though we haven't got to the fall yet, God anticipates the fall and He anticipates redemption right here. Before the fall. So here's four prayers and then a little poem I want to close with. Prayer number one What is it that you have given me to do today? That's what we should ask. What is it that you, God, have given me to do today? It's very simple. My life is so much more peaceful when I ask that question. Because there's a lot of things he hasn't given me to do. I mean, there's a lot of problems in the world that it just seem overwhelming. I just, oh, okay, fine, there's all those problems, but what do you want me to do today? It's a much more doable question. Secondly, second prayer, give me the grace to serve you as I work. Give me the grace to serve you, Lord, as I work. I don't work with kids as much as I used to, but I used to love this time, you know, just find the job that your mom has asked you to do a hundred times and you know needs doing and do it without her asking because you know it needs to be done. And do it because you love God. That's life. Thirdly, help me to not burden myself with the success of my work. I get up here to preach today, I have no idea what this sermon will mean to your hearts. And for a long time, you just think, oh, please, Lord, work. And you're asking that question, but you're thinking, if I could only do it well enough, then they would get it. That's the wrong attitude. The accomplishment of what you set out to do is up to God. Don't put that burden on you. Rely upon him for his gracious hand of provision. And fourthly, Help me to surrender my heart to you when you limit my enjoyment of this world. Help me to surrender my heart to you when you limit my enjoyment of this world. God will limit your enjoyment. Why do you think we covet? Something we want, we don't have, and somebody else has it. He is going to tell you no. And learning to submit your heart is the hardest thing in the world. But that's the path to happiness. This poem is relatively famous. It's by Reinhold Niebuhr. Probably wouldn't know the author. It's a serenity prayer. Some of you have heard the portion of it, but not all of it. And actually, the the unheard portion is better than the Known portion. 
I'll read it. God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things which should be changed. And the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. This is the pathway to happiness. I don't care what the world tells you. This is God's strategy. This is his plan. Amen.